You can buy a car bumper sticker that says that life is too precious to waste. But how do you prevent wasting your life? We meet people every day who in their most honest of moments, in their quieter moments, would confess that they find themselves drifting through life. And as they reflect on where they have been, they don't feel that they have done very much. And maybe in our most honest moments, we are those people. The time clock is increasingly ticking. How do we prevent wasting our lives? Well, turn to that first verse on the outline with me, and let's read it together. Be careful how you live, not as fools but as those who are wise, make the most of every opportunity for doing good in these evil days. Don't act thoughtlessly, but try to understand what the Lord wants you to do. I'm going to use different versions, as you will see are used in the Purpose Driven Life material. There are There's something good about that because it highlights or brings freshness to verses that we know so well. There's also a downside to that and the danger is that you lift a verse right out of context and you put it in a different translation and you make it say something it was never intended to say. So with that that awareness, being on our guard, we allow these verses to speak to us in fresh ways. You may want to circle the word careful because what uh, uh, Paul is saying is that there is a danger to live not carefully, but there is a danger of living carelessly. In fact, the Greek, the emphasis is on being careless. Do not be careless. Literally, don't stumble through life. Don't drift through your days. And how easy it is for us to stumble from one thing to the next with no overarching purpose or direction. So Paul says, think it through. Know where you are. Know where you're going. Know what you're about. Know what your purpose is for living here. And be wise, making the most of every opportunity. And try to understand what God wants you to do. There's nobody here who wouldn't really want to know in their hearts what God wants them to do. We're going to spend 40 days thinking together about what God wants us to do. But before we begin that, as preparation for our days together, I want us to think through three of life's most important questions. They're there on uh, your outline. What does God want? What does it take? And why should I do it? And if we boil our lives down, it comes or centers around questions such as these. What does God want from my life? Well, when you read through the whole Bible, you can summarize what God wants for your life and mine very simply. He wants my whole life. That's what he wants. He wants my whole life. There's not a single verse in the Bible that suggests to us that you can be a Christian and live your life any old way that you want to. It's just not there. God wants all of you, not a part of you, not 10%, not 50%, not even 99% of you. He's very jealous about this, the Bible tells us. He wants all of you, every bit. 
And to be fair, God makes no secret of that. He doesn't take us by surprise with this demand. It's up front almost from the beginning. Read the early chapter of the early books of the Old Testament. It's right there. God's demand. He doesn't want a bit. He wants all of you. It's not a mystery. And so you get so many verses. Give yourselves completely to God since you've been given new life. And use your whole body as a tool to do what is right for the glory of God. C.S. Lewis once said, the only thing Christianity cannot be is moderately important. If it's really true, then it deserves everything you've got, don't you think? If it's not true, why are you here? It's either all or nothing. If it's true, it demands everything. If it's not true, we are fools if we go with it. Christianity is all or nothing. Yet we have specialized in making it of moderate importance. A part-time activity. Far too many of us, myself included, spend far too much of our time drifting through life, treating our relationship with God as only of moderate importance. Of course, we wouldn't say that. But our actions bear that truth. That our relationship with God is of consequence, but to only certain areas of our lives, rather than the whole of our lives. We don't really know what God wants us to do, So we sit down, we go to church, we turn up at house group and we drift along. We give God our Sunday mornings and we give him our Tuesday evenings and we wonder how lucky he must feel at our overwhelming generosity. Yet look at the next verse, way back in the Old Testament. Nothing hidden. God, up front, this is what the Lord your God wants you to do. Respect the Lord and do what He has told you to do. Love Him, serve the Lord your God with your whole being. We're not talking about non-Christians or not yet Christians. We're talking about Christians who are sitting on the fence acting as if their lives, even as Christians, are made up of several parts. I've got my working life, and I've got my social life, I've got my family life, I've got perhaps my sex life, I've got perhaps uh, 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 my retirement over there somewhere, and I've got vacations and holiday over here, and my life is the sum of all of these things, and God is one of those parts, one of those segments. Wrong. God is the whole thing. He wants the whole of our lives to be under his control. Nowhere in the Bible does it say that God is content just to have a part of you, even if you choose to give him a big part. He wants it all. And if you're not up for that, you will be a very miserable and a very frustrated Christian. And sometimes I meet, certainly not in this church, you understand, but sometimes I meet miserable and frustrated Christians. And they're miserable and they're frustrated because they're treating their Christian faith as if it's a part of their lives and they wonder why it's not working right. He wants your whole being. The myth, as we've been saying uh, during our money series, is that you can do it all and have it all, but you can't. And this verse we've looked at several times over these last months. No one can serve two masters. 
Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. I want you to circle the word cannot. Because he doesn't say you should not. He doesn't say you should not serve God and money, but that you cannot. There is only one thing or person that can take first place. Everything else needs to be number two, number three, number four, number five. Only one thing can take that first place. And it can be many things that make that demand, money being one of them. But sports and hobbies can push God out of first place in our lives. Our work can push God out of first place in our lives. Our schoolwork can push God out of first place in our lives. Our courting and our relationships can push God out of first place in our lives. Even our own family and the demands of them can push God out of first place in our lives. It's not that any of those things are wrong and that God is against them. He's for all of them, but only when He is in first place and they therefore take their rightful place. We cannot serve God and something else. It's not that we shouldn't, we simply cannot. And we delude ourselves if we think we are. So what's going to be first place in your life and mine? God said right at the beginning, you have no other gods. And whatever is in first place has become a god, small g. And at any time that you've got something in your life that's number one, God says that's an idol. And you shouldn't have any idols. It's the very first commandment that he gave. Remember when Jesus was walking down uh, the streets of Jerusalem and uh, a man walked up uh, uh, or walked past and Jesus said to the man, hey, you follow me. And the guy said, okay, I'll follow you. I will follow you, Jesus, but Lord, let me first Go and take care of a few things. Now that little phrase, Lord, let me first, makes no sense. How can you in one single phrase say Lord and me first at the same time? They do not go together. If it's me first, then he's not Lord. So you have to decide. And let me ask you a personal question. Where are you saying to God, yes, Lord, but me first? God, I'll live for you, but let me finish my education first. I'll live for you, but let me establish my career. I'll live for you, let me find a lifelong partner. I'll live for you, let me buy my house and pay off my mortgage. I'll live for you, but let me get the kids off my hands. I'll live for you, but let me get financial security and my pension at least kind of covered as much as you can these days. Lord and me first? No. It makes no sense. And so Jesus told the story about a king who invited people to a great banquet. And uh, and as he invited the people to come to uh, uh, the the feast, the king, instead of uh, receiving jubilant replies from the people he had invited, began to receive excuses. It's not on your outline, but it's on the screen. They all alike began to make excuses. The first one said, I can't come. I've just bought a field and I must go and see it. 
Please excuse me. Another said, I've just bought five yoke of oxen and I'm on my way to try them out. Sounds really exciting, hey? Uh, But he couldn't come because the oxen came first. Please excuse me. Still another said, I've just got married so I can't come. Notice they each made their excuses. The first one said, I can't come because of my wealth. The second one said, I can't come because of my work. The third one said, I can't come because of my wife. So here's the question. What excuse rises to the surface in your life to justify putting you first? What rises to the surface to justify those attitudes and patterns in you that simply is, at the end of the day, about putting you first? The little secret of big consequence is this. It's only when we put him first that all those other things find their rightful place. Because in everything you do, if you put God first, He will direct you and crown your efforts with success. I don't know anyone who doesn't want to make a success of their lives. Now remember, this is not success in your terms or in the world's terms. This is success in God's terms. But that's what will matter at the end of the day when you see your life as God has seen it. You will want to have been successful in His terms. Put God first. And so we can try for too long living as part-time Christians. doesn't work. It'll never work. It was never meant to work. What does God want? He wants all of you. What does it take? It's a word we don't like. What does it take? Discipline. And a groan went out across the land. Whoever practices discipline, said the writer in Proverbs, is on the way to life. You cannot be a disciple without discipline. Notice what the Bible says. Discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. Now, we're not surprised by this, are we? No. Neither of you are surprised. And the rest of you are somewhere else. Because all of us are very disciplined, aren't we? Oh, you're more disciplined than you think. Some of you are very disciplined in your work and in your career. You plan your day, you're always on time, you're conscientious in your work habits. Some of you are very disciplined in your physical exercise. You never miss the gym, football practice, or the early morning run. It's in your routine. In fact, if you miss it, you feel all out of sorts for the day. Some of you, if you did it, you'd feel all out of sorts for the day, but that's another story. Some of you never miss a favourite TV show. I mean, you wouldn't dream of missing it. You never fail to read your monthly magazine subscription. When knitting for the modern woman comes through the door, you get it open as fast as you can. And that's just the men. Some of you never miss an event. You never miss something happening at your favourite club or pub or whatever it might be. And of course, many of us never miss a meal. Shoot, miss a meal? Never even thought of the possibility of missing a meal. Because we're disciplined in those things that have become important to us. In the areas where we want to be, we have trained our lives to respond in a particular way. 
Yet we say the most important thing in the whole of the world is God and His purpose. And yet we drift along sometimes in our Christian faith in a way we'd never dream of drifting at work or with our favorite hobby or developing our sport. But somehow in our spiritual life we drift along and then we wonder why it's not all happening. Could a casual observer think that we were more committed to supporting Ipswich Town than we were to Jesus Christ? Ooh, below the belt. There was a rugby match yesterday, wasn't there, everybody? As it was, Donald, wasn't there? A rugby match. I can't remember who won, but England lost. How to appeal to a whole congregation as a Welshman. I've lost you all. Anyway, there's always this afternoon. We wonder why it's not happening as we drift along. What's interesting about all the things that we are disciplined in is that we no longer think of most of them as requiring discipline. So ingrained are they in us that they have become habits that we do without any conscious or real conscious effort. We do it with hardly noticing. That's the goal of discipline. Discipline is positive action to produce behavior habitually. Why do I discipline my children? Is the goal to punish them for what they've done wrong? I hope not. The goal is that they will not do it again. By disciplining them, I'm hoping that they will live in a different kind of way. If I keep disciplining them for the same thing, is it working? No. If I keep disciplining them and they only behave the way they should when they think I'm watching, is it working? No. What do we want to do for all our children? We want them to learn to behave in certain ways habitually, whether anybody's looking or not. That's the goal. None of you grew up naturally saying please and thank you. But most of you All of you do it without thinking about it because at some point in your life, someone kept saying, say please, say thank you, what's the magic word, little Johnny? And so on and so forth. And you were disciplined and now it's not an effort, it's not a hardship, you just do it because it's a habit within you. (coughs) These 40 days are about discipline. The discipline of daily study and reflection, the discipline of belonging to a small group, the discipline of worship, the discipline of memorizing scripture, but discipline, excuse me, (coughs) the discipline of all those things, but the goal is not discipline. The goal is an army of God's people who will naturally and habitually live their whole lives for him. But it takes discipline to become spiritually fit. Spend your time and your energy on exercise to keep spiritually fit. Anything good that has been developed in your life has taken your time and your energy. And yet, as I said a few moments ago, in our spiritual lives, so often we drift. Applying the minimum time, and maybe the minimum effort. And then when our spiritual lives are not working, how often do we have the sheer cheek, the overwhelming audacity to blame God? 
to blame God. Most of the time when your spiritual life isn't working, and mine, our instinct is to blame God. We drift, and then we think it's his fault. It must be great being God, don't you think? These 40 days are about establishing in our lives good spiritual exercises. And discipline has many aspects. It means time, and it means energy. Discipline nearly always means giving things up. And this next verse addresses this head on. Let us strip off every weight that slows us down, especially the sin that so easily entangles, uh, so easily hinders our progress. And so, you have two things that are stopping you reaching and running God's purpose for your life. Weight and sin. These two things hold you back. What are they? Well, the first is sin. You know what sin is, don't you? It's naughty. Stop it. Don't do it. Your life will be much better without it. From murder to selfishness, stealing to greed, idolatry to pride, if you harbour sin in your life, it will absolutely ground you in your journey with God. There's an absolute certain rule in the universe that you cannot be small on sin and big on God at the same time. And it may be that as we begin 40 days, God's saying there is something in your life and now it's time to sort it out. And I want to sort it out beginning today because you've lived with it for far too long. And there are some things that we're so used to in our lives that we don't even recognize they're wrong anymore. They're just so comfortable, part of who we are. Oh God, search us and show us. See what's wrong in us and lead us in the way everlasting. But what about the other thing, the weights? What are the... What are the weights that stop us? Well, I suggest to you that these are things in our lives that are not necessarily wrong, but they're just not necessary. They're not necessarily wrong, but they're just not necessary for us to achieve what God wants in our lives. They drag us down because we are overloaded with them. When I was a teenager, I swam competitively. In order to do that, I would train with the City of Cardiff swimming squad six times a week. Three times in the morning before school and three times in the evening. As a teenager, I didn't do venture scouts and I didn't do gymnastics and I didn't do chess club and I didn't do computer club nor trampolining or join a football team. Because these things were bad? No. But because they simply would have overloaded me because I swam. That's what I did. As it was, I can remember nodding off in maths one Tuesday afternoon. Don't say that too loud round here. My maths teacher was in church last Sunday. You never know who might be listening. What are the weights in your life? The things that are not wrong, at least not in themselves, but they're slowing you down. They're hindering your progress because they're just there and they take your time and their effort and their energy and they're just not necessary for what God wants to do with you. Nine out of ten people will give to me the reason for not doing, for not doing something that they say is spiritual, that they say they know they should do, and that they say will improve their spiritual life. So they've bought into the idea they will not do it because they say they are too busy. Because they are too busy. These are the weights that slow you down. The week Evan came... I was writing a sermon about budgets 
financial budgets. It was really boring. You're lucky he came when he did. I would have told you that it doesn't matter how much money you've got, a tiny, tiny bit, or a huge amount that you don't know what to do with, you should have a budget. Why? Because you have a responsibility before God to know exactly where all that money that he's given you actually goes. I want to ask you about your time. Like your money, perhaps you don't know where it goes, you just know that by the end of the month or even a couple of days before, if not a week before, it's gone. What about your time? Do you know any more about your time other than that by the end of the month it's gone? This is time that's a precious gift from God. It strikes me that the very least we should understand is exactly where it went. Maybe I'm asking you to give it some thought this week. What takes up your time? What takes up most of your time? And should it take up that much time if he is first? It's important as we start 40 days, because next Sunday I'm going to ask you to be adding three habits to your routine. A weekly small group, a daily devotional study to help us think about God's purposes for our lives, and a memory verse. You can't do it unless you cut something else out. If you put so many irons in the fire, the fire will go out. You can't burn the candle at both ends and be as bright as you think. Because I swam, I didn't do football. Because you put God first, you don't do. But um, but um, but um, but um. The choice means different things for each of us. For some, it's going to bed 15 minutes earlier to get up 15 minutes earlier to do that devotional reading. For others, it might be slightly less time at the gym, slightly less time developing your game in your sport, whatever it is, and a little more time working on your spirit that lasts forever rather than on your body, which will die anyway. Don't get too disheartened. For others, it means less time on the phone. (gasps) Less time on the computer. Boy, what a waste of time a computer is in many ways. Less time on MSN. That's not a problem for some of you, I can tell. (laughs) And a little more time with God. Maybe one less soap opera a week for Jesus. Catchy, hey? Lent is a time to give things up, but so often we focus on the giving up. Lent is not about giving things up. It's about giving things up in order to do for God's purpose. If you're going to take 40 days seriously, you'll probably have to give something up. What will it be? So discipline. It's about time and effort to do spiritual exercise. About giving up things that God says will always be wrong. Sin. It's about giving up things that because you are doing them, you cannot do what God is asking you to do. Things that are not necessarily wrong, they're just not necessary. And lastly, discipline is about being focused. Being focused. Meet Mary and Martha, whom you know well. Martha was distracted by her many tasks. Who relates to that? Oh, just me. Thank you for some honest person over there to my left. I have a feeling you're fibbing just a little bit on this Sunday morning. She's distracted. And uh, she comes and says, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to do all the work by myself? Tell her to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you're worried and you're distracted by many things. There is need of only one thing and Mary has chosen the better part. Martha had fallen into the hospitality trap. 
She had become trapped by the idea that Jesus had come to her house because he wanted to be in an environment that was perfectly clean, a spotless place, and that he wanted to uh, sample the very best of Palestinian cuisine. So we sympathize with Mary. Imagine Je- with Martha. Imagine Jesus coming to your house. Jesus coming to my house. What a pressure. It's got to be perfect. The house, Ajax clean. The pot puri, fresh. And the food, gourmet. Aunt Bessie's roast potatoes will not do because Jesus is here this Sunday. To all of you who flap around like mother hens when people are coming to your house, listen very carefully. It might not be the easiest thing for you to hear, but like medicine, it will do you good. Are you ready? Your guests are not coming to your house for your wonderfully prepared and totally exquisite food. Your meal might cause Nigella Lawson to eat her heart out. You might have spent all week worrying about it and all day preparing it. Sorry, that's not why they've come. They're not coming either for the sheer privilege of being in your wonderfully manicured home. Your guests are coming to see you. Otherwise, they would have gone to the toll booth or somewhere else. Mary got it, don't you think? Do we sometimes miss the point in our lives? So busy getting everything looking right that the very things that matter elude us. We might wonder how Martha got so distracted that she should carry on with the dishes when Jesus was in the very next room. But don't we get so distracted doing all kinds of stuff when Jesus is just in the next room knocking at the door of our hearts. And if only we would recognize he was there and hear him knocking, we would realize how absurd and how pointless the things we are so busy with really are. They would seem so pointless. Jesus is there. Surely the dishes can wait. Mary has chosen the better part. I like it because it means a choice. And you say, Simon, I can't choose. I just can't get it all done. You're right. But another little secret. It isn't all worth doing. It's not all worth doing. Honestly, I'm sure. Against the backdrop of eternity, it's not all worth doing. You don't have to do it. And I hear you protesting. Nobody's holding a gun to your head saying you've got to do all this stuff. God doesn't expect it of you. Perhaps other people around do. That's a different thing. Mary chose the better part. It doesn't all need doing. I tell you this daily struggle, but I'm learning, or at least I'm attempting to learn, that there are enough hours in each day for me to do exactly what God wants. Isn't that true? You're not sure about that? I'm not sure about it some of the time. It's enough hours this week for me to do everything God wants or is God playing games with me? Is God playing games with me? No, there's enough time then, isn't there? For me to do what he wants. And so I say to you, it doesn't all need doing. The fantastic thing is, God wants to help us get it right. God is always at work in you to make you willing and able to obey his purpose. If we get serious about these 40 days, about putting God first, he will make us willing and 
able. What does God want? He wants all of you, every part. That's what he wants. What's it going to take to get you to grow? It's going to take discipline, time and energy and effort. So why? Why should I do it? Why should I do it? Two words. Even if there were no earthly benefits to you whatsoever, and we could spend the rest of the day recounting those benefits, even if there weren't, why should I do it? Because of the cross. Because of the cross. He gave his life completely for us and asks for our lives now in return. Don't waste your life, the life for which he died. Jesus, we thank you for loving us, for your overwhelming, overflowing kindness in our lives. Thank you for the cross. And we trust in you. We trust in your forgiveness. We trust in all that you have given through your death and resurrection. And so as it cost Jesus to be, so he asks us to be living sacrifices. To offer our lives in the same way he has given to us, at least in some small measure. And so you might understand, therefore, the context of these last verses. We beg you, says Paul, writing to the church of Corinth, we beg you, please don't squander, don't waste, don't misuse, don't drift one bit, one moment of this marvellous life that God has given. And so this is our prayer out of Habakkuk. And Habakkuk wrote that he'd heard all about what God could do. I've heard the news about you. I'm amazed at what you have done. Lord, do great things once again in our time and make those things happen again in our own days. We've got a real opportunity together for 40 days to put God first, to discipline ourselves that we might develop even better than we have at the moment, habits that enable us to live for him with the whole of our lives. And thank God, when it came to our salvation, he didn't sit on the fence.